Sounds like maybe a good time to start. Oh, we've got to wait for Mark to sit down. Okay. I knew there was somebody missing this morning. Morning. So I guess we'll, uh, we'll start. Um, and I've noticed that we've got some folks that are joining us this morning and you're, you're jumping right into, I think, part nine of a kind of a deep water study that we've had to kind of come up for a little shade and air. So thank you for jumping on the plane with us. Um, and I think that the, the, the plane analogy is one that has crossed my mind to explain where we are in, in the study. We're, we're in Romans 1, which we know is a, a very uh, intense passage of Scripture that descends into what is kind of the, the bottom of the fallen state of humanity. We start fallen, and then we descend into just horrendous darkness through the abandoning wrath of God. And as we were working our way through that, as we were coming right up to the very uh, more universal aspect of a fallen society uh, abandoned by God, I kind of, uh, the plane was a little bit bumpy coming down, so I thought, well, we're gonna go take a little roundabout. And, and we ended up really in seeing the fact that we are saved out of a life full of sin that we then carry into our new life in Christ and begin to go to war with. And we are saved not unto ourselves, but we are saved by Christ into the body of Christ for the very expressed purpose of sanctifying our life within that body of Christ and all that God has knitted together in that body to be a part of that sanctification, right? And, and perfectly fit to what you just asked me to read, how, how abandoned we are of the God of the Bible, particularly in the church setting. So we're kind of taking this, this roundabout about the putting on and the putting off of the individual and, and the church but now we're kind of coming back around, if any of you have ever had an aborted landing <laughs> in a storm, when they pull up, right, they come back around and they're looking for a little cleaner slot. But we're still coming down into very dark, tumultuous storm when we look at this passage that really represents the many of so many passages spoken by our Lord and the Apostle Paul. Um, so I wanna, I wanna just finish out this morning just the encouragement of the body of Christ that we've been dropped into out of this life of sin and just never lose sight and let scripture fall on us. You'll, this will be a lot of scripture uh, about the fact that God has knitted this body of Christ together, this, this little community right here, he has precisely and specifically knitted together 
to function as a very perfectly unified body, right? It's a beautiful thought, and it's one that we ought to be very active in as a body of Christ for one another, right? So I want to just read this passage, and then I'd like to pray for us, and then we'll see how far we get this morning. But we are ultimately going to work our way back into that Romans 1 um, descent from verse 28 into verse 32, probably start it next week. But I, just listen to this Psalm 119, verse 17 and 18. And I want to just draw on the, the, not certainly the preciousness of the gift of the Holy Spirit. But when Paul says it is the power of his gospel, he is talking about the Holy Spirit, the dunamis, right? The, the, the one who has been the inspiration of Scripture through the lives of the writers and all the circumstances from which they wrote. And that is the Spirit of God that is in each believer as a result of regeneration. I love this, this psalm because it just takes the Holy Spirit from out there and it brings it right in here and it helps us understand one of his primary ministries. Psalm 119, verse 17 and 18. Be encouraged by this, right? Deal bountifully with your servant that I may live and keep your word. Whenever you see the Father's will, the Father's will, the Father's will, there it is. And what does that word teach us? My son is your Savior. Right? Verse 18. This is what I want you to see. Open my eyes. Pray for that. Pray for the illumining work of the Holy Spirit. And an insatiable desire for the Word of God to be rightly understood in your heart and in your soul. Because apart from His illumining work and our true faith in the triune God who is at work in us. I think that's how the church gets to be what Pink saw 100 plus years ago, right? A God entirely of their own making. That I may behold wondrous things out of your law. Now, isn't it interesting that that's the desire of the heart of this to understand the wondrous things out of your law when we have a church age today that says, unhitch yourself from the law. Unhitch yourself from the Old Testament. That is the God of this, not this God who just loves you and so wants you to be this or be that, right? The Spirit of God will illumine you to the true God from Genesis 1 all the way to the end of the book of Revelation, who is the same God. Right. So let me pray for us, and then we'll get into our, our Bible study here. Lord, we thank you for this blessed time to come together.
and to know that we are your body. We are your precious possession. And we are all of that because all that the triune God has done from before the foundation of the world unto this very moment. Lord, we pray that your spirit would be at work illumining our hearts and minds to these truths and that we would just be drawn nearer and nearer to you and to one another and to let that love that is unfathomable to a world who desperately needs that love be on display in the most beautiful of ways for your name's sake. And it is in these things we pray. In our Lord Jesus Christ's name, amen. So I want to just carry on with that. I want to take that psalm and I want to bring it right over into our book of Ephesians. And if you want to follow along, um, open up Ephesians 1. We're going to be in here for a few passages. And this is really continuing on in this illuminating work of the Holy Spirit and the importance of the body of Christ in our sanctification, in the putting off of the sins that beset us. I thought about Psalm 23. He leads me in the paths of righteousness. For what? For his name's sake. Not, not me. For his name's sake. To put on display the power of God in the salvation of a sinful soul. And Paul, you see, will just beautifully capture this through this book of Ephesians. We're just going to take some, some touch points in there. In Ephesians 1.15, we read, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love toward all the saints. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. And what are his prayers? Paul says, I'm glad you asked, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory. See how he invokes the triune God? <laughs> right there. May give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, and the active work of the Spirit is right there in verse 18, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. So when you're in the quiet hours, in the evenings, in the mornings, and you read a passage that you may have read a hundred times and it just goes, wham! Do you ever think about where that illumination and very practical application to your life comes from? And does it not help you realize that our triune God knows every single little bitty aspect of our life, past, present, and future, and is working through the Word of God applied to our lives in that very beautiful way? That's what Paul's praying for here. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. Why? That you may know... What is the hope to which he has called you? And they will make sure of it, won't they? <laughs> and the mystery is, how often are we getting in the way of that very work? 
because we refuse to put off the baggage that we carried right into our new life in Christ and we refuse to put on the blessings and the righteousness that seem to kind of go against that baggage that we want to continue to carry around. And we all struggle with that and that's precisely why we need one another, right? I said it before, nobody knows me like my wife does. She is the greatest, your wife, your husband is the greatest gift you can have if they are walking in the Lord to your sanctification because nobody knows what you need to put down more than your spouse, hopefully. And by the way, when you go to counsel couples who are deep in trouble, what do you generally find? They are so far apart they don't even know one another. That's not an accident, right? It's all part of that sanctification. To which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? Where does he point you every time, in every trial, in every trouble, in every burden? Where does he point you? Where you're headed and the certainty of it. The hope of heaven Counter to the hope of this world, what is the hope of this world? Man, I, I hope that works out, but I really don't believe it will. I hope this world gets better, but I really don't believe it will. Right? This is the certainty of future events. It's what he's pointing you to. Why did the Lord go to the cross, says the writer of Hebrews? For the joy that was set before him. He knew exactly what that cross was going to accomplish. It's this body of believers that Paul's talking about. Not that we are precious, but how precious are we in this light of this passage? Right? What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness? And here's right out of Romans 1. <laughs> his power toward us who believe the power of the gospel that took your sinful life on that downward slide and snatched you right off of it through regeneration and landed you right on a road that is being sanctified all the way to being glorified. Isn't that wonderful? And they write about it as if it were already done because it is. <laughs> It'll make you kind of warm inside, Miss Judy, that day we got baptized into this. All right, together. According to the working of his great mind, look at who's being active in these passages, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, and who we know who that is, the Holy Spirit, and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. The triune God can talk about themselves, just flows right through there, right? They're all three right here. They were all three right there when the dead body of Christ was quickened back to life, right? Verse 20, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above, and this is really important for our study, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. And trust me, those are all very real. And in this world, they are all very dark and very deceitful and masterful. 
in their schemes. And above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And flip over to Ephesians 4. And I want, I want to leave this thought with you. Right now within the true, complete body of Christ, maybe even within this very little community, how much division is there? How much is this and that and them and her and him and this division going on in the true body of Christ? I think I can stand pretty comfortably with Jonathan Edwards and say that the Lord is going to heal and close every one of those wounds in his body before we ever enter into that final state of perfect worship. Let's think about that. Jonathan Edwards was confronted with it after 20 years of faithfully serving his church. And his people wanted to open up the Lord's table to anybody who wanted to come and have it. And he would rather go serve the Native American and put his life at risk than allow the table of the Lord to be decimated like that. So they put him out. The Lord's going to heal every one of those wounds. I would say we ought to start right now as a church, healing every one of those wounds that divide us from a brother or a sister. Right? Because the Lord's going to. Right? And I think we'll see it in this passage. Ephesians 4.10 he who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers to what? Equip the saints for what? The work of the ministry. We have to be the body of Christ, amongst the body of Christ. If we are ever going to go outside of the body of Christ and do the work we have been saved unto, and if we're not ministering to one another, if we're not teaching and coming along lovingly and putting off and putting on and coming alongside lovingly and rebuking a brother who is in sin, how in the world can we go to the world and not in so many ways be seen for what the church is so much seen for right now? How many people have you walked up to with a genuine desire to witness the Lord you love and they are disgusted by it? How much of that has to do with this shallow, fake evangelism that completely lacks what the Lord showed us all the way through his ministry, which is discipleship of believers and unbelievers, right? 
And part of this comes full circle because when we come back down into this Romans 1 passage, we will see these wounds that are in the church, in the true body of Christ, that Christ will heal if we haven't healed and reconciled. And they're the behaviors of people that are at the bottom of the abandoning wrath of God. Right? He was the head into Christ from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is what? Equipped. Right? Every one of us in the body of Christ have been very personally shaped and sanctified to be equipped to be that part of the body of Christ that we are to be a part of. So that the body may be complete, fully equipped. For the work of the saints, we might add, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. And there you see the role that each of us play when we are putting on and building up and we are putting off or hanging on to. Because that weight that you're hanging on to is being held on to by the church and the body of Christ that you're a part of. It affects the whole church. And then Paul jumps to Ephesians 5. I jump. Sorry, Paul didn't jump. He had quite a bit to say in between there. But go to Ephesians 5.15, and here comes a warning to the church that he was writing all this to. And I would just encourage you to think about the fact that the Scripture is completely, completely sufficient in all of our needs, everything necessary for life and godliness. But this passage is a warning for every single person who is illumined by the Holy Spirit in the days they're living. And that means we don't read this passage and we think about the historical days. We think about the days we're living in right now when we read this warning. He says, look carefully then how you walk. There's the putting on and the putting off and the refusal to do it, right? Because Paul in so many other places says, walk in a manner worthy of your Lord, right? Look carefully how then, how then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time. There's a mouthful. <laughs> because the days are evil. which is true from today right on back to the very days where the mass of humanity and the very people that have been given all of the oracles of God crucified that God. And frankly, I don't know really if we can honestly say we're any more or less evil than that society because I think evil is evil. And I think it has raged the entire Time and it shows up in Genesis 4, right? 
Therefore, do not be foolish. Could you imagine standing before the Lord and saying, hearing him say, you were such a fool so much of the time? Yeah. Why would Paul be exhorting the church to not be foolish if she wasn't prone to being foolish? Shallow. Ignoring the passage he just gave us about the world that we're living in. Buying the ideologies that we have all around us that it's really all good. There's a few that are kind of, but the rest of it's really quite good. And we should just be trusting <laughs> of everything that's going on around us, right? But understand, here it comes, Ryan, what the will of the Lord is. Ryan had me read a clip from Pink from a hundred and some odd years ago. And he said, the church doesn't have a clue what the will of the Lord is. It's the will of the man and the congregation and everything else. It's not the will of the Lord. Right? So I'm going to turn up the heat a little bit. We're coming back into this descent into Romans 1. So it's going to get a little bumpy again. And this is straight out of the mouth of our Lord and much of the writer of, of uh, the Gospel of John. But this was the mouth of our Lord on the night of his soon coming death. John 15, we know it well, but think about it in the context of this passage. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. Right? The proverbial question we all ask when things get really sideways in our life. Why me, God? There's your answer right? With one exception. An awful lot of what drives the sidewaysness in our life is the failure to put off and to put on. It's the consequence, it's the reaping and sowing consequence of sin, universally applied even to the church. Otherwise, why would the exhortations be constant to put off and put on, to walk in a manner worthy, right? If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world. There's the snatch, right, that Paul talks about in Colossians. He snatched you right out of the kingdom of darkness, right into the kingdom of light. And there's the passage that helps us see that. But I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. And boy, for some of us, that was like head-spinningly fast. From friends yesterday that are like, well, what is your problem? They went downhill from there. <laughs> Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they, here it comes, kept my word... They will also keep yours. And there comes the, the revelation of the new covenant, the revelation of Christ, the one who was coming from Genesis 3.15, Isaiah 53. He's now here and you're looking back at the cross. So you have even no excuse. More so. They will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name. And there's that Psalm 23. 
because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have, here it comes, no excuse. And we just don't realize to live in a house where there's, I can't even count the number of Bibles in our home. The electronic access to Bibles, the ability to look up scripture, the books that have been written that have been faithfully written out of the exegesis of the scriptures. This is the society that we're living in that has access to all of that and we are so without excuse. without excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me, hates my father also. Now, I wanna kind of remind us of a passage in our Romans passage in Romans 1.22 and kind of begin to bring us back around into the kind of the, the glide path for our landing back into Romans 1.28. It's Romans 1, 22 through 23. And I want you to see in this that the descent of humanity from their fallen state and where they always go. And that is what gets us right on this slippery slope that takes us from fallen, sinful, separated from God to a horrendous state of humanity, Right? Romans 1.22 says, claiming to be wise, they became fools. And what did they do when they became fools? This is wonderful insight into the way Paul writes, right? He'll write a sentence and then he'll unpack it for 10 chapters. But he's always unpacking the thoughts that come to his mind. And that's what he's doing here. They became fools. So what does a fool look like? They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things as if to say anything under the sun, Ryan, right? But the true God because they have, as we learned in our passage, they have judged God. And they have determined that that God, according to their standards, is not worthy to be their God. That is what happens in the heart on this downward slide, as we saw. That is the debased mind. And we see in the rest of the passage that from there, God gave them over some to sexual perversion, some to homosexual perversion. But I want you to see that the primary marker of that abandoned society is sitting at the bottom of that passage. Because that community represents somewhere between 5 to 10% of this population. When you look at Romans 128 through the end of 32, that really represents the entirety of this population. So that sexual perversion is just a marker of a society who has a mass of their society sitting at the bottom of that abandoning wrath. That is fearful to me when I look at our society. 
And when you look at the veracity at which they're coming after the minds and hearts of our children and our grandchildren, we had better get back to Ephesians 5 and recognize these days are evil and it is a relentless effort to seize their minds and their hearts. And it creeps into our households in ways those little ones figured out all the time. It's fearful, right? Why do you think Paul talked about the whole armor of God? Because we are at what? War. And if we don't get that, we are, again, not being the body of Christ. Because we have the truth, we have the illumining work of the Holy Spirit. Keep in mind Genesis 3.5. You will be like God. That's the lie. And it permeates society. And we're going to look at a little bit about how that permeates this next couple of Sundays. Paul begins his pastoral epistle in 2 Timothy 3.1 with this passage. But understand this, that in the last days, which means we're somewhere on that continuum, right? Feels like we're getting farther and farther down that road every day. But understand this, that in the last days, there will come times of difficulty. Why? Because people will be lovers of self. Straight out of Genesis 3, 5. Did God really say, as if to say, isn't he a liar? Isn't he withholding what is good for you? And you know what? You really don't need him. You can live totally autonomous to him because you can be just like him. You can be the superhero God that God is to you. Is that not the desires of the heart of Satan? That is the precise desires of Satan. And it has permeated society, academia, and consequently every one of our children who flow through that system. Lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, and on and on and on it goes. But yet there's a veneer of religion still out there. And this is what the Lord has to say right into that in Matthew 7, 21 through 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. That is a mass of religious humanity who say, Lord, Lord. They say and they walk and they do all kinds of things that appear to be very pious and religious. This is how the Lord addresses this. Did we not, they say, prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your They are standing before the Lord in judgment and they are their own defense attorney. Look at all the things we did for you. But we all know the passage, what was missing. A very personal, insatiable love for the Lord Jesus Christ. 
because of what he had done to grant them a righteousness that they could never achieve. And why are these people so shocked? Because they believe they were somehow garnering their own righteousness. They didn't need the righteousness of Christ. And therein lies the problem with the religious, deceived, unregenerate person. And that's what our Lord is revealing in this, right? They are shocked. And he says in verse 23, And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness, and that will be the end. That will be the beginning of eternity for that individual. Think how many people on this planet are in works-based religions. And do we know the religions well enough to know they're even works-based? Because I can tell you, apart from a genuine, true, biblical understanding of the substitutionary work of Jesus Christ, that is the only way you're going to know those other religions because every one of them have to do with a variety of different religious ways to attain self-righteousness. As if to say to God, the Father, no thanks. I see what you did to your son. That is not good with me. As if to judge God's means to bring about salvation. And is there anything that hits harder on the Father than that? It's interesting in John 8, 33, Jesus' encounter with the leaders of Israel. John 8, 33, they answered him, we are offspring of Abraham, and here it comes. And you may have heard this in a number of different ways for religious people who don't know the Lord, but have a system that they are a part of to be saved. They said, we are the offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. Right? Grady's cocking his head because he knows this is a people that has been enslaved since their existence in one way or another. In Egypt, in Babylon, in Rome. You see the delusion? You see the deception? Right? what is the point? We have never been enslaved. In it. We are free. Which is why Jesus said, I am the way, the truth. I am the life. I am what sets you free. That's what, what he was attacking in this passage. And how does this relate to our, this is how we find this massively wide road and the society on that road is the society that sits at the bottom of Romans 1. It is the entirety of the unregenerate humanity that willfully rejects God over and over and over again. This is probably the most poignant exchange you will find with our Lord, and it's in John 8, 41 through 50. And we're going to bring in the father of lies so that we get an understanding of what is the underlying force 
that drives the ideologies and the systems and the behaviors and, and all the things that we believe against God, right? Jesus is just going to unpack it and he's going to tell at this time the most religious people on the planet something that they want to kill him for. John 8, 41 says, You are doing the works your father did. They said to him, We were not born of sexual immorality. You know what that was, right? That is that, whoosh, that knife that they throw at you when they know you're about to confront them. As the Lord did here. That was pure. Look at your parents. We've heard the stories. That virgin birth... We know better. That's the first indication you've got somebody who really is going to try to protect hard their religious righteousness because they'll throw daggers hard at you in the most personal places. And how does our Lord respond? We have one Father, even God, they say. Jesus said to them, If God were your Father, you would love who? Me. You see, the centrality always comes back to a very insatiable love for Christ and an understanding that the Word of God and the Spirit of God are the one who teaches you all about this Lord that you have come to know and to love and to have as an insatiable pursuit. For I came from God, and I am here. I am not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? And here it comes. It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. And that is not a reason not to speak God's word. That is not a reason to put it under a blanket and go try to make friends with a society that is utterly hostile to the very truth of God. It is to bring that word and that life up out and into those lives so that they can see plainly the power of God in your own life, in my life. But you cannot bear to hear my word. You, boy, this is an evangelistic line, isn't it? You are of your father, the devil. And your will is not to do the will of God. It is to do his will. To say yes to whatever seems to be counter to what God has revealed. And it's interesting, in the midst of this heated exchange, and they are already plotting to kill him, that Jesus says this, he was a murderer from the beginning, as if to say, and you are about to be completely just like him. Because his one desire was to steal my throne and you are about to crucify me. <laughs> you are doing the works of your father, the devil, right now. We might see that as unloving. Jesus was putting it right at the point at which they were about to do the unthinkable, right? He does not stand in truth because there is no truth in him when he lies. I just looked at the time. It's like, how did, where did it go? There is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. 
Which one of you convicts me of sin if I tell the truth? Why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God, and here, my dear brothers and sisters, is, is where you can have the greatest of encouragement. Here's the words of God. And we now know, where does that hearing and understanding come from? From the Holy Spirit that is in you. What a wonderful affirmation that the Lord has done His wondrous work in our souls. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. And there you see two of the most hated doctrines. We talked about the doctrine of man and his true condition, apart from what all the ideologies say about him, right? And the absolute sovereignty of God. And yet, sitting right in the middle of that for the believer is the constant exhortation to pray to God that we might walk in the will of God. They answered him, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? And I would like to ask you of all the things you've learned in your church life about various doctrines, how often does the church absolutely demonize God for what he has revealed to us about all of his sovereignty and all of the doctrine of man? It is God who gets attacked. That is straight out of Romans 1. But that is occurring from within the visible church. I have heard from the mouth of teaching pastors. God doesn't have a clue who's going to get saved. How in the world can you square your theology with that? But that is an effort to just kind of water everything down to make it very appetizing for people who don't want to hear the word of God. Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor the Father, and you dishonor me, yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. And that is Romans 1 to a T. You judge God, God's going to judge you. So I want to just enter into this, this one passage, and then we'll pick up next Sunday with, with a little bit of a study on Satan. Go to Ephesians 6 again. So now we're continuing on with this kind of interesting uh, outline through Ephesians. But Ephesians 6.11 says this. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Now, there's Paul's ultimate put on. And it is a lifetime of study to look at all the different facets of that armor that we are to put on in order to have the opportunity to be involved in this spiritual war that's going on. But I want you to pay attention to what he says, to stand against the schemes of the devil. And I want to help you with schemes. Just from a definitional perspective, it's cunning arts, it's deceit, it's craft, it's trickery. The word comes from the verbal, methudo, 
to follow up or investigate by method and settled plan, to follow craftily, frame devices and deceive, or as Strong's would say, to, to lie in wait with all these ways. And I'd like you to think about something in the context of why Paul was so adamant about the importance of our spiritual armor. Consider how brilliantly devised these plans are by Satan. Have you studied Satan from the scriptures? Because we're going to next week. Do you understand what he was created as? The brilliance of what is now a brilliant, debased mind. And his fall occurred as we entered into the garden, the history of humanity. And he has been working these schemes over and over each generation of humanity. And he continues to refine them. And in a very uh, kind of messes with your head kind of way, he's doing exactly what he intends to do. And he's doing it all within the will of God. That's where our comfort is. But as we'll see next week, we cannot lose sight of how formidable the schemes of Satan are right now. Because we are 7,000 years into it, give or take. And he has been scheming with an understanding of Scripture beyond what we ever could to bring about what one could just wonder his debased mind actually believing that he's going to be able to usurp God. And he is fervent about it. So we'll pick that up next week and then we'll slowly start to find our way back down in Romans 128. So thank you for your patience. <laughs>